1505, a young man knocked at the gate of the Augustinian Monastery in Erfurt, Germany. He was seeking peace for his soul, and he had come to the most likely place in all of Germany in that day to find it. It was only weeks before, during a blinding thunderstorm, that a lightning bolt seemingly from heaven had struck him to the ground and had caused him to utter a vow to St. Anne that he would become a monk in exchange for protection in the storm. The young man was Martin Luther, a 21-year-old law student of Eisleben, Germany. On that fearful evening, as Luther labored along under the panic of the thunderstorm, the lightning bolt that knocked him to the ground also caused him to realize that death paid no attention to the state of a man's soul. Death could come unexpectedly before the opportunity to make a final confession of sins or prepare for last rites and the prospect of what awaited Luther in eternity without a full quota of the grace of God was too painful to consider. And it was this that drove him to his vow to enter the monastery. The Catholic Church he was a part of in that day taught that entrance into the monastery restored a man to the state of innocence that he enjoyed as a newly baptized infant. In the monastery, Luther could enjoy not only a spiritual reset on the meter that counted his sins before God, but he would also enjoy the safety of the seclusion and all of the rules of the monastic life. It was a life apart from the degrading influences of the world and a life dedicated to climbing the steep ladder to heaven. Perhaps here he could finally satisfy the God he knew to be so angry with him and come to peace in his soul. Luther threw himself into a monk's life, manifesting such zeal as to make a name for himself even amongst these holiest of men. He often took no food or water for three days. Self-flagellation was common. And since those monkish acts deemed most pleasing to God were the wearing of only chafing underclothes and sleeping without blankets in the winter cold, he would frequently deprive himself of proper shelter from the cold until his fingers and toes had frozen stiff. He later wrote, If ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. And yet a deep fear slowly crept over Luther. He began to realize that while his actions might have met the external standard, his heart was far from, it from what it should be. He began to analyze his motives and concluded that all of his practice of monkish ritual and deprivation, it all came from a heart of self-love. He was performing before God, but all of it was for his own sake. All those prayers he prayed in the chapel weren't coming from a heart of devotion to God. He knew he had to mean them when he prayed them. But that's where the rub lay. As he analyzed his heart, he concluded that the pressures of having to attain such a high standard of righteousness and merit before God was actually driving him from God rather than to Him. A spiritual counselor touched this raw nerve one day when he asked if Luther loved God. Love God, Luther replied. Christ seems to be nothing more than an angry judge who comes to me with a sword in his hand. I hate him. 
what Luther was experiencing in his pursuit of justification is often very similar to a believer's experience in his pursuit of sanctification or growth in holiness. As believers, we know what God requires of us. We must, oh sorry, but the height of God's requirements seems beyond our ability to achieve. We must be like Christ. And our consciences tell us frequently that He was sinless, and we are not. And as a result, we gradually fall into despair. Before long, our disposition toward Christ is anything but love. We try to overcome this by working really hard to be a good Christian. Perhaps if I don't love Him, perhaps He will love me at least because of all I have done for Him. But in ourselves, we know we'll never get there. So we end up putting up a false front frequently. We try to appear righteous and spiritual, but the need to keep up appearances wears us down. It's an exhausting way to live. It's nearly impossible for such people to reach out to others to minister Christ to them. After all, Christ seems to have done little to endear himself to them. Inviting others into this kind of experience of Christ seems disingenuous or false. And conversing deeply about Christ and our Christian experience with other believers is dangerous. Deep spiritual fellowship seems undesirable because free and open fellowship would mean exposing to view the mounting sense of failure to measure up that we conceal behind our fake piety. When James admonishes us to confess our faults to one another and to pray for one another, he seems to be speaking to us from another planet. A planet where all the Christians are good Christians, not like me. Daily Bible reading, if continued at all, is sustained less and less by a genuine love for God and His Word. Every time we come to God through the Scripture, we only find an angry judge who greets us with one more thing we haven't done. And as a result, such Christians live a life of exhausted defeat under the sense of separation from God. Their minds return less and less frequently to God. Their longing to be with Him, to read His Word, to gather with His people fades. In time, such activities can even become repulsive. Such nearness to God only serves to remind us of our failure and distance from Him. Love God, such a Christian replies. I hate Him. Is it any wonder then that many of these Christians leave Christianity altogether? And when we ask why they have left, the only thing they have to say is this, it didn't work for me. I could never do it. People in these circumstances need the healing balm of the good news of Jesus Christ. They need the tonic of the news of God's work to unite them to Christ. The heart of the gospel, the good news, is that God unites us to Christ for all the reasons we feel distant from Him. The news of our union with Christ is both a balm to exhausted legalists, and it is also a pathway forward to the holiness that we know we must attain. The paradigm of the gospel that we looked at two weeks ago is that the gospel is all of God. He's the one and only source and spring from which our righteousness flows. We understand that to be justified before God, the righteousness we we need must come from outside of ourselves. Indeed, we are justified by the transfer of righteousness 
from Christ to us. What many Christians have never been told, though, is this. The scriptures make clear that God works out this transfer by uniting us to Christ so that his righteousness becomes ours. You cannot work hard enough or muster enough willpower to produce this righteousness in yourself. It is from Christ. And Paul tells us that we are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of all that Christ is, we are declared just in God's sight. For Christ's sake, you will sit at the table of the Heavenly Father forevermore. And you must direct all of your praise to Christ for this. Because this is the good news. The scripture tells us that this union with Christ that brings us his righteousness, this union with Christ takes place by faith. Listen to Paul. We have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, Galatians 2.15. And thus, by faith alone, a man is united to Christ so that all that Christ is becomes his. There is a strange law of the souls of fallen men that inclines them constantly to look to themselves for the righteousness that they need. When Christians begin to live as though it is up to them to work hard and produce the fruits of righteousness that God requires, the, effort, the effect is the same as it was for Luther. Such Christians come to hate God. And the secret such Christians must understand is that their pursuit of experiential righteousness day by day in the Christian life for sanctification, that pursuit proceeds on the same basis as their pursuit of positional righteousness by which they are justified. Righteousness is always obtained by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So how do we live by faith in the Son of God? And how does such faith in Christ produce righteousness and sanctification in me that I know God expects that I manifest? How does that work? How do we live by faith in Christ alone? In the book of Galatians, in addition to showing us how our union with Christ is the source of all the righteousness we need to be justified, Paul also takes time to show us how union with Christ, not human self-effort, supplies the necessary righteousness that we need to be sanctified, to grow in holiness. And in the book of Galatians, Paul is severe in arguing for these ideas. He shocks us at the end of the book by vocalizing his wish and prayer that anyone who teaches otherwise would castrate himself. Paul is not gentle towards those who teach that righteousness springs up from the powers of human will. Nowhere in Galatians is Paul's exposition of living by faith in Christ for sanctification anywhere as clear as in Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 through chapter 3, verse 5. So let's read Galatians 2, verses 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Notice several things about verse 20 with me. Look at it. First, Paul begins with a statement that is surprising to us. He says, he has been crucified with Christ so that it is no longer I who live. In one sense, that makes sense. Crucifixion does tend to bring your life to an end so that you no longer live. The second thing to notice here is that Paul has in view his situation before this crucifixion and also after it. Look with me at the verse. He says he no longer lives like he did previously. And he speaks of the life that I now live in the flesh as though it were different than his previous life. The mode of Paul's earthly existence has changed. He used to live. Now he no longer lives. The cross was the decisive point of transition from one mode to the other. Paul says, I used to live, now it's no longer I that lives. The cross was the point of transition between these two modes of existence. The character of that change from one to the other is that Paul was crucified. What is Paul saying to us here? What does he mean? To get an answer, we need to examine three things together. First, we need to look at Paul's life before he was crucified. What was true of his life before this crucifixion? Second, we need to examine the decisive moment of death and what occurred. And third, we need to examine what things look like now for Paul. In what sense does Paul continue to live and what is the character of that new life? So let's begin by looking first of all at Paul's life before his crucifixion. And we get a window into what Paul's life was like before he was crucified with Christ if you look with me at verse 15. In verse 15, Paul says, We ourselves, that means he and Peter and all the rest of the Jewish believers, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Paul says he's a Jew. He's a member of the race of whom God had said, though all the earth is mine, you will be my special possession. Paul was a member of that nation. It was a thrilling thing to be a Jew. And in verse 15, though, Paul sets Jews in contrast to another group of people. He says that he was a Jew, not a Gentile. The term Gentile was a term the Jews used to speak with disgust of every other non-Jewish nation. They were the Jews, and then there were the Gentiles, the rest of the world. Paul's statement here, though, says more than just that he's not a Gentile. He says he is not a Gentile sinner. And at that point, we get a little window into what Paul's mindset was. The Jews of Paul's day looked out upon all the nations, the Gentiles, as sinners. They did not have God's law. They did not have circumcision. 
They did not keep the Sabbath. They ate pork. Jews didn't do that. Jews kept the Sabbath. Jews tithed. Not only the harvest of the field, but even the produce of the mint and dill and cumin that grew in the window boxes outside their wife's kitchen windows. The Jews were scrupulous to obey God's law. And Paul gives us a window into the essence of this mindset. If you just listen to Philippians 3 verses 4 through 6. Paul says, I myself had reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. The heart of Paul's mindset was this, confidence in the flesh. Confidence in human power and ability before God's law. His parents' actions in circumcising him, his physical lineage, his Pharisaic zeal, his righteous actions before the law. These were the basis of his confidence. Paul wasn't a sinner like Gentiles because he kept the law. From day to day, Paul lived before the law of God. Confident that he could work the works of God. He could do it. Paul was strong. Paul was able. God would be pleased. Paul's confidence was in himself. And Paul's life of self-confidence continued uninterrupted for some time. He continued to live zealous to keep the law of God and confident that God would be pleased. This zeal spilled over into outright hatred of a new sect in Jerusalem, Christians, followers of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus had been crucified by the Pharisees only months before, the religious sect of which Paul was a part. They had crucified him on charges of blasphemy against God. He had claimed to be the son of the Blessed One. And this claim had rubbed the sensitivities of Jews who believed in only one God the wrong way. And they had rushed him to Pilate's judgment hall demanding the death sentence. The sentence had been carried out and the Pharisees thought they were done with this blasphemer. But rumors began circulating in Jerusalem that Jesus had risen from the dead. The soldiers denied it. But Paul himself knew that they were quiet because they had been paid off. Yet Paul could not accept that he was alive. He had claimed to be God come in the flesh. Yet the Jewish God was the one who shielded Moses in the cleft of the rock saying that no man can look upon my face and live. God was distant from human sight, Paul thought. How could this man from Galilee who walked among them be the Son of God. Surely the judgment Pilate had rendered against him was God's own act of condemnation against this blasphemer. After all, that's what God's law required, was the death penalty for blasphemers. And surely Pilate had carried out God's own will in condemning Jesus of Nazareth to death. And yet, if it was confirmed that Jesus was alive, that changed everything. For God alone can raise the dead. 
And if God had raised this man, Jesus of Nazareth, then Pilate's death sentence against him was not from God. If he was alive, that could mean only one thing. He was who he said he was. God come in the flesh. But if he was God, then how could he have died? Death is the penalty for sin. And God has no sin for which he must die. For who sins then would he have died? We can be confident that a Pharisee like Paul, steeped in the Old Testament revelation of God, that these are the thought patterns that coursed round and round in his mind in the months after the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. How could he make sense of these things? At that point, his name, though, was Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He must stamp out this sect that was proclaiming Jesus to be alive. And so with all of these things upon his mind, Saul proceeded to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem and received authority so that if he found any belonging to the way in the Damascus synagogue, men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. And at that moment, Paul died. All the thoughts that had been swirling through his mind fell into place. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, alive? Pilate and the Jewish nation had crucified him, but God had raised him up? Jesus, alive? How can this be? And yet, there he was speaking to Paul. This could mean only one thing. The verdict of crucifixion was not from God. He was not a blasphemer. He was the Son of God come in the flesh. So for whose sins did he die? This was the question that finally brought Luther to Christ. Luther read in Psalm 22 of the miseries of the Messiah. Anfestungen was the German word for it. Why did the Messiah, Luther said, the Son of God, undergo such depth of Anfestungen? The miseries of this life are the result of sin, but he had none. Surely it could not have been for his sins. Surely Paul must have concluded... He had died for the sins of the Gentiles. Yes, yes, for the sins of the Gentiles. And yet, he had claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. Was it for our sins, Paul must have wondered? The sins of law-abiding, self-confident Pharisees like me? It was. Verse 20 of Galatians 2. Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. At that moment, 
that decisive moment, at that moment of realization, Paul died. How? How did that realization and the cross of Christ put Paul to death? When Paul met Christ, he saw one hanging on a cross for him. The effect was that by that cross, Paul was put to death. The old self-sufficient, self-confident, I, Paul, was crucified. His self-righteous confidence in himself was put to death by Christ's cross. For the cross showed him that his self-righteousness fell woefully short of God's standard. It is one thing to say that Christ has died. It is another thing to say that he has died for me. Because to say he has died for me is to say that his death is what I deserve despite all of my self-confidence and effort. Apparently then, it all contributed nothing. Human will is powerless to produce the righteousness God requires. Human effort is empty, so empty that the Son of God must die for me. And when God opened Paul's eyes to see that Christ gave himself up for Paul at that very moment, Paul died. That realization killed his self-confidence, and day by day it continued to put it to death as he gazed upon Christ crucified. As Paul says in verse 21, if righteousness came through the law through my effort to keep God's law, if that could produce the righteousness that was required, then Christ died for no purpose. But he did die. Because human will, plus God's law, does not produce the righteousness that is required. And now Paul tells us what his life is like following this death. Now it is no longer Paul who lives from day to day. Now it is Christ that lives Paul lives, yes, but only by faith in the Son of God. Paul lives his daily Christian life by faith in Jesus Christ. No other options were available to him as to how his continuing earthly life could proceed. Living by faith in the Son of God was the only option the cross left him. Christ's cross did not cut out of Paul's understanding that God requires a righteous life. Instead, it cut out of him his inclination to trust in himself for the ability to live such a life. The cross brought about a transfer of confidence because as Paul gazed upon the cross, his self-confidence was shattered. And from the midst of that pile of shards, Paul could only look up to Christ for his righteousness. The gospel, the cross so humbled Paul that he had nowhere to turn for the righteousness he knew God expected of him. Now Paul's confidence was in Christ alone. Now it is Christ living his life in Paul. No longer does Paul live. Now it is Christ who is living. Day by day, the life you see Paul living is the life of Christ, the vine, in him. Paul lives by reliance upon Christ to produce in him each moment the righteousness he needs to live unto God. Paul is a walking dead man, slain by the cross, 
walking now as Christ animates him. How does all of this work from day to day? Let's dive just a little bit deeper as we finish up here. If we're left wondering what all of this looks like, Paul actually tells us in the remainder of the book, beginning in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And I want you to notice several things about these verses. I want you to look at a big difference from chapter 2. Chapter 2, it was all, chapter 2, verse 20, it was all I and me and I and my. Now in chapter 3, it's you and your and you and you and you Galatians. Paul tells us by this that he expects that the Galatians situation could and must parallel his own. What Paul describes in 2.20 and 21 is the experience of every Christian, he says. You are to gaze upon the cross also until you are slain by it. All of your self-confidence destroyed so that from that point forward it is no longer you who live but Christ who lives in you. How do you behold the cross? Perhaps Paul was there that day at Golgotha, the foot of the cross. Perhaps not. But one thing is sure, you can never stand there on the hill of Calvary as Christ is publicly crucified. And the Galatian believers weren't there that day either. And yet, Paul says to them in verses 1 and 2, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. When did they see Christ crucified? They had never even visited Palestine. The answer is it was in the preaching of Paul. Paul says these believers were fools for listening to him proclaim the message of Christ crucified and then being tricked into turning to their own self-effort again to produce daily righteousness. And this means then that believers are prone to be tricked and to return to their self-confident pursuit of righteousness wherever preachers do not accompany every call to live as Christ did, with an answering call to look upon the cross and see Christ crucified also. Unless preachers proclaim Christ crucified, it will not be long before we Christians begin looking once again to ourselves for daily righteousness. Now look back with me at verse 20, chapter 2. I want you to notice the pattern of Paul's new life in Christ. Christ lives in Paul. And Paul lives by faith in Christ. Christ dwelling in Paul, Paul trusting in Christ. Does that sound a little bit like abide in me and I in you? What's interesting here is that Paul sees the same pattern in the experience of the Galatian believers in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. In other words, chapter 3, we'll see that in just a minute, chapter 3, 1 through 5 then, is an explanation of what Paul's experience in 2, 20 and 21 looks like in the lives of the Galatian believers. So if you want to know what chapter 2, 20 looks like, read 3, 1 through 5. Remember the pattern? Christ dwelling in Paul, Paul trusting in Christ, we see that same pattern in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, but there's one small change. Chapter 3, 1 through 5 doesn't focus upon Christ. It focuses upon the Spirit. 
Look at verse 2. Paul does not say Christ lives in me. He says, you have received the Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 5, he speaks of the one who supplies not Christ to you, but the Spirit to you. How does Christ dwell in me? Chapter 2, verse 20. Answer, by his Spirit who lives in me. Verse 5 asks, if the one who gave you the Spirit, so that the righteous works that could only be called miracles among you, does he give you the Spirit through your own self-effort to keep the law? Or does he give you the Spirit by hearing with faith? Look at it. Which is it? How do you get the Spirit? The life of the Spirit is the life of faith. Paul says he lives by faith in the Son of God who lives in him. He exhorts the Galatians to live by faith in the Spirit who lives in them. Life in the Spirit is living by faith in the Son of God who dwells in me by his Spirit. So what does it mean then to live by faith in Christ who dwells in me? It means to live in total reliance upon the Spirit of Christ who dwells in me. So how does that work? How do I rely upon the Spirit of Christ for this daily walk of righteousness? There's three things that we see in these verses. First, this means that we look at the cross daily so that our self-confidence is put to death. Chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. He has been publicly portrayed before you as crucified. Now you must no longer live cross puts your self-confidence, it puts your pride, it puts your self-reliance to death. We've already given extensive attention to this, but the Spirit does not live and work with power in the lives of those who trust in themselves. If He did, such people would attribute their work to His work to their own ability. But where the cross has slain such self-confidence, the Spirit goes to work. Paul says that there is more behind the Spirit's work in us to work the righteousness of Christ. Notice verse 5. It's not simply a matter of gazing upon the cross. Instead, you receive the Spirit and you continue to live in the Spirit, not by works of the law, but by hearing with faith. What does it mean to rely upon the Spirit of Christ? Look upon the cross let it destroy all of your self-reliance, and then rely upon the Spirit. How? By keeping the law? By hearing with faith. That's how the Spirit becomes yours. It has been said that faith always has an object. Faith takes hold of words that it has heard. Faith is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling of positive vibes in my heart. Faith believes statements identifiable words spoken by one person to another. You cannot believe me unless I talk to you and you hear my words. And chapter 3 verse 5 tells us that the Spirit speaks to us and we must hear the word of the Spirit. How do you rely upon the Spirit of Christ for your daily walk of righteousness? It means opening up His words and listening. The Spirit speaks to us. He puts His power into operation through His Word. 
He only works to produce the fruits of righteousness where we hear His words. And if you aren't reading the Word of the Spirit, how can you trust the Word of the Spirit? How can you hear it with faith? What do you look for when you read the Word of the Spirit? Are you looking, first of all, for laws to obey? Or are you looking for something to believe? Are you looking for somewhere to put your confidence and trust? Are you looking for words you can rely upon? As you read your Bible, look first of all for the statement of things God has done or will do for you in Christ. Look at God's work first and believe what He says. Listen to those statements. Put your ear down to them and hear God speaking His words to you. Think upon them all day long. Write them down. Carry them with you in your pocket. Tape them to your fridge door. Counter Satan's lies with them. Listen to the word of the Spirit. But the third thing we must do, there's another dimension to this. We must not only hear the word of the Spirit, we must rest in the Spirit's power. Look back at chapter 3, verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do, by, do so by the works of the law? Well, by hearing with faith. The Spirit goes to work where there is hearing, but such hearing must be accompanied by faith in the words that are heard. We must go beyond hearing the word of the Spirit to believing the words of the Spirit, to resting in those promises. Stop trusting in yourself, is Paul's message. Look at the cross. Let it crucify your self-reliance. And then rest in the Spirit's power to accomplish what you could never achieve in your own strength. What does this look like? First, a general statement of what this looks like, and then something specific, and then we'll be done. Generally, this means believing God's words on every point. Points like these. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Believe that, and by that faith, the Spirit will kill all preoccupation with self, and you will soon bear the fruits of love towards other people. What about this one? I will never leave you or forsake you. Believe that one. And by that faith, the Spirit of God will kill discontentment and greed. And you will soon bear the fruits of joy. Or this one. Fear not, for I am with you. Believe that one. And by that faith, the Spirit will kill fear and anxiety in you. And you will soon be bearing the fruits of peace. Or... He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Believe that one, and by that faith, the Spirit will kill that crushing guilt that weighs upon your heart from day to day, and you will soon be free to minister God's refreshing good news to others out of a spirit of deep love for God who saved your wretched soul. More specifically, there's something to be said for the principle that our dependence upon God and His Spirit is only as extensive as our prayer life. Prayer is a vital part of our reliance upon the Spirit of Christ. And we saw that last week in John 15, right? Ask what you will, and it will be done for you. Christ in Paul. Paul trusting in Christ. The Spirit in Paul. Paul trusting in the Spirit. I will be in you if you will abide in me, depending and relying upon me. John 15 and Galatians 2 are talking about the same thing. And what happens in John 15 and Galatians 2? 
or the book of Galatians when this is the case. Fruit. Fruit from the vine. The vine produces its fruit in me. The Spirit, chapter 5, produces his fruit in me. Now we have further to go with these ideas, but for now let's just summarize. What does it mean to live by faith in the Son of God? First, look at the cross. You are the branch, not the vine. The vine is where the life is. The cross shows us that we are only branches. Apart from the vine, we can do nothing. Look at the cross and let it crucify the inclination in you that you can do it, because you can't. Christ said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Secondly, read the word of the Spirit and believe those promises. And pray believing to, believingly to this one who dwells in you that he would bring forth the fruit you so desperately want to see in your life. And then, then walk forward into your day, striving with all of your might against sin, not in the confidence of the human ability to produce the fruit. Strive in the power of the Lord, the power of his promises, the power of his spirit within you, confident that he will make good his promises. The best illustration I can come up with to describe what it means to walk forward into your day in the power of these things is found in several of the Gospels. Jesus meets a man who has been lame for 38 years. The man is lying on the edge of a pool, waiting for an angel to stir the water so that he can get in and be healed. And Jesus comes and commands the man who has lain there for 38 years to rise and walk. I can only imagine what must have gone through that man's head. Walk? Jesus, I have lain here for 38 years. I don't even have the ability to get into the water when the angel comes, let alone to get up and walk out of here. And you're going to command me to walk? As though some invisible power will suddenly course through my body and cause me to do the impossible? That's precisely the point that many Christians are at in their Christian growth. Every Monday morning after the sermon on Sunday, Lord, walk? I've read your word. I've heard the sermon that Christ was like this. Don't you know that my life about that for the last 38 years has been one failure after another? I have tried and I have failed and I have tried and I have failed. And now you command me again as though some invisible power was going to course through my body and cause me to do the impossible. Here's the secret. Christ is in you. You are united to him. So ask whatever you will, and it will be done for you. He will live his life in you as you live. And in that moment of temptation, at every crossroads, look to the cross, cry out to the Spirit. He will bring forth his fruits in your life. The arm of the flesh will fail you every time. Perhaps someone is inclined to argue, this is not the work that God requires of us. You may say, surely he requires that we exert ourselves strenuously to keep his laws. Surely he expects much labor and toil from his children. Surely we possess in ourselves the power to live righteous lives as we choose. Is faith all that he requires? Listen to Jesus' words in John 6, verses 28 and 29. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them. This is the work of God, 
that you believe in him whom he has sent. So rise and walk by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. This is life in the Spirit. Lord God, thank you for giving us these things. Most of all, for giving us your Spirit. The hope of your promises in the new covenant. That he will be in us to guide us. To direct us. To illumine us. To show us the things of Christ. To cause us to walk in your ways. These promises, Lord, are the foundation of our hope. May we strive against sin with all of our might, not in the power of human self-reliance, trusting in ourselves once again to do the impossible. But may we strive in the hope that you will make your promises good, that every one of them shall be fulfilled, and we shall stand before you in glory and righteousness, blameless, because of the work of your Spirit. Grant us grace this week, Lord, to recall these things to our mind and to begin or to continue the regular pattern of looking to the cross, hearing the word of the Spirit, asking what we will, and striving in the hope that it shall be done for us. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us faith now to see these things in the Lord's Supper. And we ask that what you have done for us through your word, you would continue to do for us through our observance of the Lord's Supper. And we ask these things in Christ's name.